Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Dr. Jeffrey McGee is a special guest on today's show. He's a human capital developer and chief culture and learning officer. He's also a multiple author and editor-in-chief at Professional Performance Magazine. But before we get a chance to speak with Jeff, it's a Leadership Hacker News. In the news today, we explore some research completed by Boyden, a premier leadership and talent advisory firm who's completed the study on talent-led transformation in a post-pandemic world. The global study explores the business outlook among CEOs, boards and other senior leaders, talent trends, priorities and investment in the wake of the pandemic throughout 2022. Studies findings show that while 77% of respondents are extremely confident or confident in their organisation's growth potential, just 47% are extremely confident or confident in having the right talent to align to that strategy. Half of all respondents described their business approach in 2022 as one of growth or expansion, and just over a quarter, 26%, as a learning or transformation opportunity. This bullish approach versus a lack of talent alignment jeopardizes post-pandemic growth. And this lack of alignment goes up to board level, with 52% of respondents saying that a different mix of skills is needed at the board. And despite this, only 38% of respondents are likely to conduct a board assessment or review over the next two years. The findings do show that respondents are reinventing talent. 74% are extremely likely or likely to invest in leadership development for high potential employees, 66% to hire new leadership talent, and 65% to redeploy or retrain existing people. The research shows a number of trends that are looking at talent and it reveals a lack of alignment across the leadership team, particularly around things like diversity. Only 47% of HR leaders think that it's extremely likely that their organization will hire talent into diversity roles. Sustainability. 42% of marketing leaders think it's extremely likely or likely that their organization will hire talent into sustainability roles, compared to 31% of CEOs. And supply chain. 37% of finance leaders think it's extremely likely their organisation will hire talent into supply chain roles, compared to 29% of CEOs. In summary, in attracting talent, respondents consider the two top drivers to be a strong overall company's reputation, 57%, and a purpose-driven organisation, 52%, followed by the workplace of the future with the hybrid working arrangements, coming at 38%. And the leadership lesson here is, however big your organisational team is, there's never a wrong time to start reassessing how you go about nurturing and growing your talent. It's our future. That's been the Leadership Hacker News. If you have any insights, news or stories, get in touch. Dr. Jeffrey McGee is a special guest on today's show. He's Chief Culture and Learning Officer, Editor-in-Chief at Professional Performance Magazine, 
He's the author of 31 books, a speaker and a board advisor. Jeff, welcome to the Leadership Hacker podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time, Stephen. No worries. Listen, let's get into it. But before we do, it'd be really great for you to give a bit of a sense to our audience about your backstory and how you've arrived at being a multiple author and as well as a speaker and a board advisor. Just give us that backstory if you could. Great question. Dangerous question. We could go on forever, so I'll try to make it really concise. <laughs> I, I, I grew up in the Midwest USA on a farm. Uh, went to college on an athletic scholarship and journalism scholarship. So running, uh, writing and running have always been passions. And uh, after college, I spent uh, some time in, in Midwest USA as a journalist doing broadcast news and print and uh, kind of fixated in the area of business and found that to be a fascinating area. Uh, but very quickly also became discouraged with the state of journalism in the 80s and 90s as a very negative, caustic, and toxic industry. Um, it's obviously not that way today at all. And that caused me to kind of leave that uh, industry. And as I tell people in my audiences and, and just in conversations, if you're ever discouraged with what you're doing professionally or you're unemployed, there's always a job uh, anywhere in the world, but especially in America, and it's called a sales job. Now, if you're not good at sales, you may not keep it, but there's always a hunger for the person who generates the revenue for an organization. So that took me into sales very quickly in, in a trajectory I had not uh, planned on. And I had the opportunity to spend a little time with a Fortune 100 company here in the United States in sales. They introduced me to adult learning, which I didn't know existed as an industry where you would go you know, to advanced training or education at the college level or business development programs at a at a, at a local hotel that might be a day or two day long program. And, and I was doing that after hours and found that to be fascinating. And uh, to jump forward over the past 30 years, that evolved me into training and development, which led me into management roles and leadership roles into owning a business. Um, and along the way, I started writing some books. Those books caught traction here in the U.S. and globally became a couple of bestsellers. And that led me to designing and creating a training and development company where I work with business leaders around the world from, from Berlin to Vermont to wherever, uh, helping them to basically leverage their human capital. Um, as I have come to learn, and, and even you and your business, I would believe you would agree. You know, you can get a building, I can get a building. You can get equipment, I can get equipment. You can buy vehicles, I can buy vehicles. But the one thing that really makes us different at the end of the day is the human equation. The people that work for you, don't work for me and vice versa. And that's what led me to where I am today in, in terms of working with business owners and leaders to accelerate their growth and success through leveraging uh, their human capital and creating a culture and environment by which great people want to come and be a part of you and stay with you. Awesome. Now, the interesting thing here, right, is the whole notion of human capital. It's something that's been recently reintroduced into our vernacular almost. But from your perspective, having worked with organizations where they are investing in their people, their human teams. Is there a real return on investment to be had in your experience? It's a great question. So one of the training companies I was a part of for many years and, and sold my stake in here in the U.S. at least for our global listeners today, if you're a, a CPA in the financial accounting world or you're an attorney in the legal world, you have to have ongoing educational credits every year to keep your license and certificate to be able to professionally do your practice. And in that space, I started learning many years ago that we spend a tremendous amount of time in every business, uh, white collar, blue collar, labor intense, uh, automation, doesn't matter, training and investing money into equipment and assets and tangibles and, and buildings where we typically say, okay, what's the ROI on that going to be? And then we do a lot of technician training, you know, how to work the machines or et cetera, and a lot of 
you know, return on that investment through efficiencies and, and, and productivity and profitabilities. One of the, the elements I have been using, even as the title on my business card for decades, even though you just made comments come back and it's fashionable today, but people like you and I have known it for many years, and that is human capital. So one, what is human capital? We spend a tremendous amount of time talking about that. Two, how do you develop that human capital along talent pathways, career expectations, market needs, business needs? And is there then an ROI on that? Absolutely, yes. And I believe there's a greater and a more lasting ROI on human capital than any other capital you can have. Because almost any other measurement of capital, which is around tangibles, uh, depreciates very quickly. You buy a new car as soon as you drive it off the lot there in London or you drive it off the lot here in Las Vegas. Um, it depreciates tremendously as soon as you leave the parking lot. Human capital depreciates if you don't challenge it. It depreciates if you don't hold it accountable. It depreciates if you're not growing and developing and feeding what individuals' goals, needs, and purposes are. Um, but if you can align all of that, the ROI is massive. And you can see it on the balance sheet as well, can't you? So if you look at the organizations who do invest in their people and have strong engagement scores, low attrition, holding on to their talent, then there's a direct correlation of those businesses' returns in real sense too, isn't there? Absolutely. You can see it from the, you know, the boardroom conversations to the executive suite uh, to frontline, you know, lead supervisors, managers, directors, whatever the title is that an organization may have for its first level and then, you know, sending upward of leadership. Absolutely. And, and individuals, you know, they come to an organization where they see an organization invest in their people and provide multiple pathways for development and growth uh, and, 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 and development of those people, not just in the job, but development in them in terms of promotability, sustainability, longevity. Absolutely. It's a massive recruitment tool as well as a retention tool. And then again, think about the, you know, the turnover. There's a, there's a hard HR statistic that's used globally and you can debate the number, but even if you debate it, it doesn't change the output. And it says basically, let's take a, an administrative job in a business, a white collar job. I hate the labels, but it gives us at least a point of reference. And they talk about the amount of financial attached to the turnover. Let's say Steve's working in our business in an administrative role, white-collar role. The amount of money attached to losing you, um, advertising, promoting, interviewing, hiring, and onboarding someone to get them up to baseline functionality of what Stephen was doing is anywhere between 1.5 and 3 times what your annual paycheck was. So it's very expensive. And then you add on additional such as, Again, what are the relationships that Steve had before he left? And if those were good, both with vendors, suppliers, coworkers, colleagues, employees, uh, it could take a long time uh, to, to rebuild those relationships. So can you start to put some numbers to it? Absolutely. The institutional knowledge that someone has to know how to finesse relationships or situations to be more productive and profitable. If I'm in a client uh, relationship role, development role, uh, again, knowing how to cross-sell, upsell, knowing what a client's long-term goals are and how we can align those with our own organizational goals. Uh, yeah, the conversations can just go on endlessly, but the finances attached to it are staggering. Yes, that's some big numbers there, aren't there? And if you think even small organizations, that's a massive number relative to the operating cycle of a business. Absolutely. Mm, yeah. So you developed the principle and notion of talentification, which is also you wrote a book about. So what is talentification? Great question. So you know, looking at the concept of talent, and you can finish that statement uh, for, our, for our listeners today, a lot of ways, whether you call it talent management, talent development, talent acquisition. 
And when I started recognizing working uh, in this space over the last 30 years, both with Fortune 100 global clients to individual industry, uh, rock star businesses that, that the common person on the street would never know the name of that business unless you're in that space, you know, whether it's agriculture or manufacturing or high tech or, you know, what have you. So to me, talentification, that concept in the word deals with what I've identified to be the 11 elements to execution and achievement. And I use the word achievement as capital letters. There's, you know, those letters stand for each of the 11 phases of what talent life cycles are about. So it's 11 elements of execution and, and achievement of the talent management model that I've identified for basically healthy and sustained and engaged organizations. And how do you create that culture where everyone, not just the leaders, not just the talent management team, understands what their role and stake is in the health and wealth of an organization. Again, if you're my supervisor or you're my peer, or you're my subordinate, doesn't matter. All of us have to understand when it comes to talent, what really are all those key aspects we're talking about? So that's what the book deals with it. Those 11 phases. It talks a little bit strategically and tactically about what each looks like uh, from anyone in an organization's perspective. And when you look at high growth organizations, again, just as you said, whether they're a small family business, a sole proprietor, or whether they are mid-sized or large going concern, you know, those 11 phases are critically important. And as you get people engaged at their level, at their capacity in these 11 uh, different areas, it also becomes a massive retention tool. Um, your entrepreneurial energy becomes organic uh, to some of the questions you and I were just visiting around. If I was a leader listening to the 11 phases and thinking about my talent and my talent strategy, is there a maybe a golden starting place or a golden end? Is there maybe one place that you think that has to be part of my talent strategy? Absolutely. So, you know, in, in, in the human relations world, HR management, uh, there's different models that are used. And, and one of the models that kind of has grab the globe in the last decade is is using stars as a metaphor for your employees. And so to answer that, let me let me share, teach a model real quickly, because I think it absolutely is explosive in answering your question. It also answers the questions of how you can guard against making sure you don't have a toxic cancerous person in your team. It's going to be working uh, actively or passive aggressively against you and take you down. So to me, there's different sort of stars. You have a rock star in your company. Rock stars are from an aptitudinal level, very high on the scale, and from an attitudinal level, very high on the scale. So they're, you know, they know what they're doing. They're your subject matter experts. They're always looking to grow and develop themselves, but they're always willing to push and achieve more. So you have your rock stars. Then you have, you know, developing stars. These are people that have great attitudes, but they need your knowledge. They need, excuse me, knowledge uh, and aptitudinal growth, which could take time. And some people are not patient for the amount of time it may take to grow their brain in any sort of a, a job or vocation. You have you know, emerging stars. These are people that, that know how to do the job, but they got a chip on their shoulder or they're not as motivated or they're somewhat discouraged. We have to know how to engage them. You have your problem players, which I call those your crashing stars. Um, you have employees that maybe you don't know very much about. Those would be your unknown stars. And then you've just got your workhorses, you know, basically your contributing stars. And a lot of times contributing stars want to be a part of an organization, but they don't really want to ascend upward into, you know, any sort of a job role where there's a lot of spotlight. They don't want to be a leader or a boss. So you need the whole mix. To answer your question, what I've recognized, you know, in, in working with, with global talents, uh, also from my media company, performance, uh, professional performance magazine, interviewing phenomenal people all over the planet, is that the real secret to your question is the rock star population, that rock star demographic. Knowing that if I've got a rock star in any job, 
sit down and, and do some, some character analysis and say, okay, what are the quantifiables that makes Stephen my rock star in job ABC? And when I can start to write down those characteristics of, of Stephen as a rock star in his job, I now have a benchmark template I could use to interview to find another rock star. I could use it and kind of put it up on the wall for anyone else who wants to become a rock star like Stephen and say, okay, these are the traits or characteristics or skills or behaviors or actions that you need to exhibit or master. Um, and I think that's how you start to answer your question is to clearly focus in on rock stars. See, and the reason I go off on that tirade is that what we've done for the last 20 to 30 years, uh, and we were not paying attention on the planet, is we actually started lowering the performance bar where mediocrity is actually seen as rock stars today in most places on the planet that I go. Right. And if mediocrity is seen as the rock star, then you can see how pathetic and how bad it gets real quick. Here in the United States, Gallup Organization did a massive research project right before COVID. And, and so it got lost in the, the noise. The challenge to the research project model, Stephen, is I think the numbers are worse today than what they said before, but basically said this. They surveyed thousands of, of American and, and global businesses based in the U.S. And they found that 56% of the respondents, so thousands of businesses means tens, if not hundreds of thousands of individuals participated in a survey. But 56% of responders said they're disengaged or complacent in the workplace. So 56% basically saying, hey, I'm going through the motions. I've, I've realized I don't have to kill myself. So it's kind of like, you know, if I'm doing some tough love here, what's the minimum I have to do for maximum paycheck? Then 15% identified as actively disengaged. These are people that they wake up every morning, look for something new to complain about, which leaves you mathematically with 29% left over that are engaged. So let's call those engaged you know, some of the, the rock stars or developing stars or emerging stars. And that's what you realize. If you want to have a successful business, you build it around the star metaphor, but you build it around rock stars. Because if Steven's a rock star and you hire me, then I know where the performance bar is set and I'm going to step up. And as consumers, you and I and the listeners today can validate what I've just shared. As consumers, just look at the places you go and ask yourself, are you really getting rock star level service or are you really getting mediocre service that people are calling rock star level? And so that's a series of answers to your powerful question. It's a great response, too. And it's interesting that the whole mediocrity can be really cancerous in an organization, can't it? Because if you, you allow your average to be sub-average, then your average occasionally will just continually slip versus your average should be your rock stars of now. Absolutely. Should be your averages in the future, right? Yeah. yeah. I coach people that if you have a, if you have, again, we can call them whatever you want. So I don't want anyone to get hung up on, on labels here, but as a reference point, if you have a job description or a job profile that says, I'm hiring Jeffrey McGee to do job ABC, and I'm going to hire Steven to do job XYZ. So obviously we're going to, we're both going to ask our boss the same question, which is, okay, great. What's this job responsible for? What do I do? What are the expectations? So, so when you start to identify the work product and then how does it need to be accomplished or how often or how much, we have clarity to our job and everything's built around it. But with that, what I coach people is if someone is doing 100% of the job you've hired them to do. So first thing I just said is 100% of the job you've been hired to do, then that means they're meeting expectations. Meeting expectations would be like you're, you're going to school and you're getting grades. And, and again, we use different scorecards around the globe. So in the United States, if you're going to, you know, kindergarten to high school and into college, the grade system we use is A, B, C, D, F. Well, I always tell people, if you want to get clarity, get rid of letter B 
for boy and get rid of letter D for you know dog. And all you should have is either an F, a C, or an A. If you're doing 100% of the job expected, then that's a C. You're meeting expectations. You're average, and, but that scares people. Therefore, any part of your job description you're not doing, you have to get an F. I mean, we're not going to give any wiggle rooms for Bs and Ds. So if someone says, well, how do I get to be an A? Then I'd say, go right back to your job description. And in any one of those areas that you exceed, then I, as the organization, am obligated to give you an A in that area. So if you take that metaphor and you use it to any sort of a job, we have. I mean, everything has been degraded down. I mean, if you're a rock star player and you wake up tomorrow morning and you're not motivated and you're just you know, not highly excited, we've all had those days. I tell people and ask people, what, what do you bring to the office? Do you bring your A game or your B? Well, most of us, the answer is B. Well, if you go home within that day and reflect on, I brought my B game to the office and I'm still the rock star by a mile. Well, what do you bring back on the, on the subsequent day? Do you bring back your A or do you calibrate down to B? And most of us, we calibrate down to B. And then someday in the future, you wake up not motivated. Do you bring your A, B, or C? Well, we know A is not in the game anymore. So you bring your C and that's, that's how we've done things. We, we keep making exceptions. We elect people that are mediocre and then we make excuses when they're pathetic. Mm-hmm. We hire people that are mediocre and then we make excuses when they're pathetic. And, and that's what's sad about the model. Instead of all of us trying to be the best we can be and raise the bar, We've actually made it globally convenient to lower the bar. Yeah, you're absolutely spot on. I, lo- I love the, the concept that you've applied to the kind of ACF because it removes the opportunity to sit in some middle ground, doesn't it? You, you hit it dead center, and that's the element. I mean, if, 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 if I am going to traditional college at a traditional age, we have all those wiggle grades, and it's amazing how we, our faculty, our parents – we justify those wiggle grades. But now if you and I are business people, as we are here today and, and on majority of our, of our listeners, and you're paying out of your own pocket to go to a developmental program to get more education so you can become better, it's amazing we don't, if we're paying it, we don't want the wiggle grade. We want the best grade possible. Well, imagine if the B and the D is off the table. It either is you're understanding the topic, so that's C. There's nothing wrong with that. Or you're not understanding it, so we're not going to pass you. You're going to get an F. I mean, you, you go in for brain surgery. Do you want your surgeon to be an, an F, a D, a C, or a B surgeon for med school? Would you prefer they be an A? Exactly. You don't want your, you don't want your brain surgeon to be a B on any type yeah. of you know, surgery, do you? You're, you're a parent. You're taking your child in for heart surgery. Right. See, I change the model, and I say a parent, you're taking your child in. You want your, you want your surgeon to be an F, D, C or a B or an A. I mean, so if you change the dynamic, everyone kind of like raises their eyebrows like it's an obvious A, but then in other professions, we accept C's and D's and F's all day long. And did this thinking set you on your trajectory, I'm going to use the word, Jeff, to when you wrote the, your trajectory code? So this is a book that you wrote around how to change your decisions, actions and directions and to become part of that top 1% of high achievers, right? Absolutely. So you've got within that, your mental DNA. Just tell us a little bit about what that is and how we could get into that top 1%. Great question. So a couple of models. It's a, it's a really easy book, I tell people. It's not going to be difficult. I, I spent two years in first grade as a child, so nothing I do is, is hard. It's pretty simple. But what I identified of the 31 books I've written, 21 languages, four bestsellers, and four graduate management textbooks, Your Trajectory Code is the only book so people can buy it online or they can buy the audio book. That's the only book I've written. It's about personal success. And it primarily draws upon one business model I've used for years called the trajectory code. And the trajectory code model is like a letter V for victory. 
And that, that diagram helps us to recognize what actions, behaviors, and mindsets take you to derailment and failure, and what are the actions, mindset, and behaviors that take us to success. Within that, there's a concept called your mental DNA, and it plays off of a formula, so it's chapter five in the book, that talks about your player capability index. And so I'm a formula kind of a person. So what I've recognized, if I look at Stephen and, and Stephen comes to Jeff McGee and says, I'd like you to be my performance coach and help me to, to accelerate my successes. Here's the goal of where I want to go. Well, I'm going to have to do some diagnostics, whether it's an online platform or just you and I are visiting via video call, because I prefer video calls versus just a telephone. That way we can see each other because a lot of visual communication takes place. It's very insightful. But what I've recognized in that formula, Stephen, is that there's very specific variables that make up a human being, such as knowledge. So that's one of the letters in the formula. So whether it's formal or informal education, technical, non-technical, certification, non-certification. Another part of it's going to be our life experiences. How does one life experience build and set the stage for the next? And how do we leverage those to be better You know, the next time we do something? How about the culture we were raised in or the cultures we've been a part of or, you know, ebbed and flowed in and out of that influences how our thinking styles and, and belief systems and confidence or lack thereof. So there's a lot more to the formula and it's very easy to read and understand, but that becomes the DNA. So if I want to grow someone in, let's say, between today and in the future, we don't know what the future date is to be the new CEO of a business, family owned uh, a global, inter, you know, international business, a local mom and pop shop. Then I would first say, okay, so to be a great executive, I'd use this same DNA model and, and you and I or whoever the appropriate stakeholders would be. We would sit down and say, okay, for us to have a great CEO, what, what would we like them to possess in terms of knowledge or skills or educations or degrees or certifications? You know, some, none, what are they? What sort of attitude, mindsets, what sort of passion, what, what sort of uh, experiences do we want them to have? What sort of relationships, people do we want them to have interacted with, grown with? Uh, network with or known. So this formula also gives us a great DNA chart to scope out how do you build a great leader, a leader of nations, leader of communities, leaders of business, leaders of, of our, of ourself. So the DNA concept has multiple applications, personal development, career development of someone creating, you know, job descriptions that client says, Hey, I need something. Listen to what the client says they need. It'll tell you exactly where you need to go. But the last way of answering your question is that part of this model, Stephen, is very objective and that's the real power behind it it gives you an objective template to assess yourself or someone else and pull all of the emotion and ego and personalization out of it to see exactly what we need to do to be smart at the end of the day laser focused you got it yeah and in the book also you talk about having the opportunity to understand your x factor when you're on your trajectory does that form part of this it is exactly. So the X factor is the first side of this equa equation. I know I'm talking to a global audience here and we have, you know, 40-ish percent of your listeners are uh, in the U.S. and 40 to 45 percent might be in the U.K. and the others are global. So this X factor concept is not like the entertainment show that uh, from the great British uh, <laughs> businessman Simon oh, Cowell. Cowell. He has a lot to, exactly. lot to answer for X factor now, doesn't he? Exactly. So, so I've been using my X factor longer than he has. Of course, he's richer than both of us, so damn, he wins. <laughs> exactly. But the X factor represents anything you're measuring is what X represents in this formula. So if we're measuring you know, how fast can you run, that's an X factor. Or how fast can you compute some mathematical equations, that's an X factor. You know, how, how good are you at woodcrafting? I mean, so whatever it is you're measuring, that's X. So to answer, let me use this example. So let's say we go on to any uh, any school campus uh, around the world of, you know, 
kindergarten to, to primary to, to high school grade. And you were to say on that campus, there's a range of athletic sports that are offered. Well, the, the varsity sport, the highest level of proficiency at that, that, that high school, let's say, of 100% of the kids on that campus, if we're measuring athletics as our X factor, of 100% of the kids on any campus, X percent would actually be good enough to make the varsity team of any sport. So if you ask that question to a group of people, it's always going to be a small number. Of 100% of the kids on a campus, you might hear someone say 20% or 10% or 5%. Then I say, okay, so let's track it two more times. Of 100% then of those high school varsity athletes, X percent would be good enough to go play at a, at a collegiate level, at a college level, get a scholarship to go to the advanced level. What percent? And it's always a smaller number that migrates. And so, okay, so final question. So we started with 100% mass at a high school, and we saw that how many kids would be good enough to be on the varsity sport at a high school level, smaller number, go play it at the college, collegiate level, smaller number. Then, So what percentage would be drafted from a college level to go play it at the professional ranks, whether it's, you know, football, rugby, whether it's, you know, basketball, football, hot, whatever. It's always a really small number. So I would get people to recognize whatever you're tracking is an X factor, and whatever that smallest finite number you just came up with using athletics is what we tracked, we're all professionals. So if you really want to see where you should be focusing your energy or how to go and develop yourself, what are you really proficient in as an X factor? So let's do the math. Let's say high school is 20% would be at the high school team. How many go to college? Let's say it's 5%. How many go on and play at the pros? 0.00 whatever percent. Okay, so that 0.00, that's you and I as professionals. We're not competing on a planet of other 20 percentiles because this is not high school. Real life is not high school. It's not college. It's pros. So if you really want to be successful, then you've got to identify what is your X factor. For me, growing up in, in, in primary school, from kindergarten to high school, I was not a great writer. I thought I was. I mean, teachers were very critical of my writing. Well, maybe it's because I wanted to be a writer and they were giving me additional attention. I didn't really like to read books in high school or college. So it's fascinating. You know, 40 years later, I love to read. I love to write. I love to do research. Uh, and all of that forms a basis of my ability to coach executives and businesses to be in hyper growth faster, quicker and sustain it. It's a really yeah, lovely way of thinking about it. This whole kind of 1% or, or 0.01% as professionals. I wonder how many people actually can even associate that in their profession today, they're already there. And that's a lot to do with mindset, I suspect. Absolutely. You, you know, it, it is. And there's actually some quantifiable ways to answer that because you posed a great question. Someone says, OK, how do I know if I'm in the top percentage of my industry or how do I know if I'm starting to rest on my you know, laurels, morals and accomplishments or how do I push myself? So I always tell people in your job, in your profession, is there another formal educational degree you could achieve? And if yes, then you're not at the top of the list. Pull yourself down at least one notch on any scale because there's something there you can quantify that you could go after that you're not. Or are there certifications in your industry? And if that's a yes and you don't have them, then bring yourself down another notch. You know, have you written any papers or are you asked to speak on this? Or are you asked to be the trainer in your business on these topics? So that's a great question you've posed for our listeners. How do you know when you're at the top of the game? There are ways of knowing it. Um, if you study another way of looking at this one percent factor, is I've you know, interviewed you know world leaders from from your country, Tony Blair to Sir Richard Branson. And, you know, Richard Branson. And I've written three books together. Whenever you look at incredibly successful people, what you'll recognize is that they associate with and typically hang out with, from their view, their vision, other phenomenally successful people, whether it's in their industry or not. You don't see a a great athlete typically hanging out with losers. I mean, they might be, you know, a phenomenal singer. It might be a phenomenal, you know, artisan. It may be a phenomenal business leader. 
Um, you know, so again, successful people typically associate with other successful people because that's one of the ways they benchmark themselves to always be being pushed because great successful people in any capacity can call you out on whether or not you're truly working or you're coasting. It's interesting, as you were saying that, Jeff, I was thinking about sports people perhaps are easy to quantify because they've got measures, personal bests, they've got fastest times, greatest passes, all of those things are quantifiable. But in business, they're perhaps around us, yet we don't spend as much time quantifying it. And I think that's a really key message for me. Huge. You just said something massive for the listeners. Think about it. Pro athletes live for quantifiable performance feedback in real time when they're practicing they have videotapes that they go back and study they have coaches and sub coaches that are always you know measuring them pushing them tracking them uh and so it's interesting in in what i call the real business world where you and i live it's amazing how the mindset of most people is we resist performance feedbacks we we, we resist uh, performance reviews. We don't like quantifiable data because sometimes, you know, it, it's misused against us instead of being used to help to grow us. We need to create that pro athlete mindset around performance execution, and then we'll become much more successful in any capacity. Yeah, definitely so. So in your experience, Jeff, has human capital or the world of talent management changed over the last couple of crazy years through COVID? It has, you know, and it's interesting. You know, I, I, I find myself posing the question just this recent weekend. I was here in Las Vegas on the Strip speaking to a, to a large convention, uh, and, and I posed the question that if if you and I were sitting in a large business audience conference, whatever topic doesn't matter, and it was January of 2020, and the person up front was asking the audience questions like, how many of you have a business plan, a game plan for 2020? Almost every hand would go up. You know, how many of you are optimistic for 2020? Everyone's hands probably would go up. Uh, from a sales standpoint, you know, maybe the more specific question, how many of you have a sales plan or strategy for 2020? Almost every hand would go up. Um, what about your talent management, your human capital? You're looking at your key key employees in your organization. You know, do you feel comfortable with that team? A lot of hands would go up. Are you looking to hire? Hands would go up. Um, have you thought about flight risk and anyone leaving you? Um, probably hands wouldn't go up. No one thought that way. Um, if we would have posed the last question in January 2020 to a large business audience, you know, what about letting a lot of your employees work remotely or virtually? You know, how many of you are open to that idea? Very few hands would have went up. Mm -hmm. But if we would have had that same conversation in June, just three or four months into COVID in June of 2020 said, well, you know, how many of you are working remotely or have a lot of your employees working remotely or, you know, uh, virtual tons of hands when it went up. So we jump into 21 as we're recording this here in, in August, September of 21. And what I'm finding is that a massive number of businesses that have had to make massive changes in 2020 to stay sustainable or that have actually been in thriving mode have embraced uh, looking at how they do their businesses differently. So COVID has pushed our business models easily 10 years into the future, just in the past year. They've, they've pushed businesses to, to actually operate the way that we were only considering a year ago. And so from a human capital standpoint, it's also pushed us to recognize where are some of our hidden jewels that maybe we were smothering and didn't realize we had phenomenal talent before COVID that has actually stood up and shined. Um, and it's, caused us to recognize how do we keep people engaged? How do we maintain our culture when we have, you know, pockets of people working together and some are distant and how do we grow and develop our people to keep them at peak performance? So has it changed uh, in some ways? Absolutely. No, because how to be successful in a position, a lot of similarities. Uh, the other way of answering it, has it changed? Absolutely. Yes. I think looking at how we are more mindful of our people equation, our human capital, 
um, has really become more front and center today than where it was a year ago. So yes and no to that question. And many different rock stars now than perhaps two years ago. Absolutely. But equally as important, of course, is to make sure that we're rewriting that DNA of what the rock star is today in today's world, right? That's exactly right. 100% correct. Love it. So this is part of the show now where we get to flip the leadership lens on you. I'm going to hack into your great years of experience of leadership development and leading others and ask you to try and distill down, if you can, your top three leadership hacks. What would they be, Jeff? I think one that we have actually touched on, and that is the player capability index model, really recognizing what's the unique talent that you can possess, that I can possess, that can allow me to be competitive with the market space of today and tomorrow, anticipate where the market's going so I can be uh, not just competitive, but I can set the set the bar of what competition looks like. That's one. Two is accountability. Um, I really have, have learned that uh, people fall into very distinct camps when it comes to accountability and reliability and trustworthiness and integrity. And so number two is not a very uh, fashionable conversation. It's going to make people feel uncomfortable. But the reality is there are a lot of disingenuous people on the planet. And you just have to be conscious of that and, and put your big, you know, your big adult armor on so they don't, uh, they don't penetrate you and kill you because everyone has an agenda and that'll be the third answer. And once you recognize everyone has an agenda and it's not necessarily right or wrong, just everyone has an agenda then the real mastery is to find ways to align your agenda personally, your agenda professionally with others' agendas. Um, and when you can find places of alignment, then great success can happen for everybody. Alignment is just massive, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's really interesting, the whole accountability thing. In my experience as a coach, when you use just simply use the word accountability, you can almost see people think, <gasps> That means I have to deliver on something. Uh, yes, that's right. <laughs> and that's no different, is it? And it is. To any other day of the week, but by just simply raising its awareness. And that's what scares people. And again, if, if an organization supports its people to be the best they can be, then within that are going to be layers of accountability, whether they're you know uh, obvious or not obvious. And again, if people want to be the best they can be, then there's going to be accountability. And you know, there's businesses around the globe that really demonstrate you know, accountability. And so when I look at successful businesses, I've identified accountability happens on five levels. And so here's another teaching moment for our listeners and business leaders. You know, first of all, the way you know you have a truly engaged workforce organization that is going to be in survival mode on its worst day and will be in thriving mode on most every day is accountability level one is self. People hold themselves accountable. So if I'm looking to interview a hire someone, I should incorporate accountability questions to vet and find out, does this person hold themselves accountable? Um, yes or no. And again, you can still hire someone if they fail the first question. At least now you know what you're in for. Accountability starts with self. Then it goes to number two is going to be systems. What systems or processes or checklists or, you know, what do we have out there that we can put our arms around to help to hold us accountable so that, that we can go back to default number one? Uh, so one is self, two is systems, three is going to be peer. Do we have peer-to-peer -peer accountability? Do we work in an environment where no one's trying to play I gotcha, no one's trying to toss you under the bus, uh, but it's, you know, we're all here because we all have skin in a game. We all want to help each other to be best. So it's your peer accountability. And then, and then four is going to be in essence customer. If that's an external constituent, what, what mechanisms do we have in place so our customers can give us feedback to help us to be more successful every day? And so there, that's a way that they hold us accountable. And if we ask for, you know, customer feedback, do we really listen to it? And do we really respond to it or is it just a game we're playing? 
And, and you have these layers of accountability. So again, one is self, two is system, three is peer, four is customer. You know, five is going to be boss. You know, whatever you define boss to be, supervisor, leader, executive team, ownership, uh, the board of directors, mom and dad at home. You know, the boss should always be last. So in any organization where you have the paradigm flip the other direction, where you have accountability, it's driven by bosses first. You're never going to have a culture that's going to allow people to be truly successful because there's going to be questions of does, you know, does the organization trust me? Do they believe in me? Do they support me? Will they empower me if the boss is always having to be there with their, you know, thumb on everything? So accountability is scary. Um, and that's the problem we have in the world. I mean, I grew up to be a journalist and, and I love to write articles on successful people and organizations and, and share that story so people could replicate success. But here in the U.S., I mean, those articles are seldom ever written. And that's why I love your podcast, because it's always about success. Just like my magazine, Professional Performance Magazine, it's always evergreen content. And it's about success from other people's lenses. Right. Uh, but but journalism should be holding all political people accountable. Don't have an agenda and, and be favorite, playing favorites. Don't be a journalist in like one political party over the other because you're not doing your job of accountability. And that's what we see happening on the planet is all of these mechanisms for accountability have been bastardized, polluted, degraded, or just imploded. And that's why, you know, sometimes when we find a, a great person or a business that blows our brain up, because, oh, my gosh, that's what success looks like. Yeah. That should be the norm. Yeah, it's a great, great reframe. Love it. So the next part of the show, we call it Hack to Attack. So typically, this is where something in your life or your work hasn't worked out well. But as a result, you've got some learning from it, and you now use it as a positive in what you do. What would be your Hack to Attack? Ooh, there's a loaded question. So I uh, I merged my business years ago with another business. Uh, doesn't need to be named. And and what I learned is that when you work with someone for a number of years and you decide to align yourself with them and go into business, it's a completely different mindset you take into that relationship than if Stephen and I, you're in the UK, I'm in the United States of America, we know of each other, we don't really know each other, we've never really worked with each other. If you and I were to merge our businesses, we would ask a lot of forensic questions, not to be mean and rude and disrespectful, but we'd ask a lot of forensic questions to make sure that this merger of, of, of human capital and minds and product and deliverable businesses makes sense. And if it does, we would have a great relationship. So what I learned is that whenever you, you go to work with someone, you need to look at it from an objective lens as if you've never met them. And really do the discovery questions. Just like when I work with a, with an organization, if I have any prior knowledge of them, I've learned to not bring that to the table in the beginning. Back up and ask all of the questions you should be asking if you didn't know them to really vet and find out, are you in alignment? Um, are you both being transparent? Does the data add up? Uh, make sure you're not about to get scammed. And that probably has been my number one lesson learned for the past uh, decade plus. Matter of fact, I wrote an executive article on it with the 13 questions I didn't know to ask that I learned afterwards. And it was saved me a lot of pain. So mm. that the hack that really has, has caused me more success. And sometimes I'm still uh, guilty of violating it because when you're romanced in your head and you like someone or you like the thought of doing something, you sometimes are not as objective as, as you could be and need to be. So I go back to those 13 questions in an article I wrote years ago. Um, so it really is be more objective and you will have more successes. And I love that because most people, whether they own their business or whether they work for an organization, often just have too much emotion in the game. Absolutely. And therefore 
won't allow themselves to be as objective as they could be. You got it. So that forensic look, I think, is really key. That's where I've lived. Yeah, absolutely. It will save it will save you and our listeners a lot of pain, grief, and uh, loss of money. Let's just say it that way. Indeed. So the last bit of the show, Jeff, we get to give you a chance to do some time travel and bump into yourself at 21, toe to toe, and give them some advice. What would your advice to Jeff be at 21? Great question. Uh, and you've stolen a page right from me, Steve. And I use that same question when I get a chance to interview phenomenal people for my <laughs> magazine. So I love that question. It's fair turnaround, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, at age 57 today, I, I don't see myself at 57. I always thought that was an older person's number. Now that I'm there, it's like, oh, my gosh, I'm, it's pretty doggone young. <laughs> So, so the question, if I went back to 21, I, I would think I would share a couple of pieces of information. Number one, I might, I might have shared get, get serious and focused faster and, and find a way to do a career that, that 20 to 25 years from age 21, you could retire out of and have a base income, base benefits to, to, to rest on for the rest of your life. And, and use that first career to gain and learn as much as you can that you could then leverage in your second career in your mid-40s to go on and have a phenomenal life. And I say that because as I look over the horizon and see people that have done just that, you know, the ability to, to, to be in your 50s and 60s and have a base retirement paycheck for the rest of your life and a base you know, health benefits to have for the rest of your life. At 21, you don't understand the magnitude of what that means. Agreed. But at 57, looking at that is massive because now you could do your second career a lot of ways and not have the stress of I've got to make a paycheck. I have to, and you finish that half to a zillion ways. So one is I would say get serious. I see a lot of successful people today. They're successful because they have that base set up. Yeah. If you're in your mid-40s and you've changed jobs many times, as a lot of your listeners have, and maybe you've not doubled down and really got a lot of good advanced education because you started your family and had jobs so you just didn't make the time happen. You really find yourself in a, in a challenged position of having to work a really hard next 20 years, if not the rest of your life. And that's the norm on the planet today. And that's also the norm I see with a lot of young people today in their 20s that are not hearing this advice that I'd give back to myself for your, your question you posed. Yeah. And they're setting themselves up thinking that they're magically going to be wealthy, whatever that means, and not have to work the rest of their life, whatever that means. And I think they're setting themselves up for a massively rude awakening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agreed. So, Jeff, listen, I always love chatting to you. You create some great content, both verbally through your talks and speeches, but also through your written work. How can we make sure our listeners can keep connected with you? Great question. I appreciate that. There's three ways that we can stay connected. One, we should definitely be connected on LinkedIn. So go to LinkedIn, uh, again, Jeffrey McGee, uh, Dr. Jeff Speaks. We need to be connected. Follow me. I don't sell anything on LinkedIn, but in the spirit and theme of what we've just been visiting with here, I post on LinkedIn every day some sort of mental piece of information, whether it's a quote, whether it's an article, whether it's a video, whether it's a blog, to cause people to think at a higher, deeper, faster level. So that's one. Uh, if you want to find out more about you know, products, deliverables, how I do what I do, then obviously you can go to jeffreymcgee.com. That's my website, jeffreymcgee.com. It's J-E-F-F-R-E-Y. So it's the non-British spelling. And McGee is M-A-G-E-E. And then my uh, media company is Professional Performance 
magazine.com. So those would be the three places, professional performance magazine.com, jeffreymcgee.com, or go to LinkedIn, and then we can stay connected and keep the brain going. And we'll shoot those links into our show notes as well. You're awesome. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you very much for the opportunity to share information and ideas with your listeners. And anything I can do for you and them, just let me know. Jeff, it's been amazing to talk. Take care of yourself, and thanks for being part of the Leadership Hacker community. Thank you so much. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event or you would like to sponsor an episode please connect with us via our social media and you can do that by following and liking our pages on twitter and facebook our handle there is at leadership hacker instagram you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker and at youtube we're just leadership hacker so that's me signing off i'm steve rush and i've been the leadership hacker